What does pop culture say about a society? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with James Harrigan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with James Harrigan. James is Senior Editor at the American Institute for Economic Research and F.A. Hayek Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. He is also co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast and was previously Dean of the American University of Iraq, Soleimani. He has served as Director of Academic Programs at the Institute for Humane Studies and Strata, where he was also Senior Research Fellow. He was also Managing Director of the Center for Philosophy of Freedom at the University of Arizona. He has written extensively for popular press, with articles appearing in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, U.S. News, and World Report, and a host of other outlets, including AIER as well. His current work focuses on the intersections between political economy, public policy, and political philosophy. James, welcome to The Curious Task. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and I was gonna. I always like to add in the uh, other part for return guests. Welcome back uh, as well to The Curious Task. It's been, it's been a bit of a minute, hasn't it? It has been a couple of few years, right? <laughs> yeah, um, no. Last time, last time we talked, I, I think you hadn't even gone live yet, right? You had a couple of episodes in the tank, and and you're just ready to go. So it looks like you've had a good run because here you still are. Yeah, good, good run so far is is, is definitely being a, being alive still and in, in, in the business. So for sure, yeah, and you, and that's right for those of. You listening that don't know, uh, James was one of our first, uh, one of the first bunch of episodes we recorded, and, and we thank him so much for being one of the original people to say yes, because uh, frankly, we reached out with probably a little to no credibility other than just the Institute for Liberal Studies brand. The podcast was, was nothing, so so that was awesome. Uh, then we talked about uh, politicians specifically, um, but today we're going to talk about pop culture. So as you know, you know, we usually frame each episode around a question and just go with that theme. Today is what does pop culture say about society? So before we get into a couple of specific points, let's just frame the discussion real quick. What, what do you mean by pop culture, James? Like when you say it in your thinking? And that's always the great question, right? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think most people would get most of it without thinking too much on the topic. I'm not talking, we'll start with what I'm not talking about. Right. So I'm not talking about politics in any immediate sense. So, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the President here in the United States. That's not what, what I'm talking about. I am talking about culture more broadly, but culture includes things that I'm also not talking about. So think opera, think the symphony, take those things up. I'm not talking about high art here. I'm talking about the things that regular people consume as a matter of course that Oh, keeps them occupied, makes them happy, and it allows them an outlet for for whatever frustrations they might have. Right. So clearly, I'm talking about things like music. Music, as we would understand it, not the way Bach would understand it, but but music, the kind of you hear on the radio. I'm I'm, th- I'm thinking about movies, TV shows. I'm even ta- I'm even talking about sports. Right. All of these sorts of things that provide that background noise of our lives. And we never really even think about it because it's so omnipresent, right? In, in a lecture I give, I, I say asking this question would kind of would be kind of like asking a fish to describe water, <laughs> right? Right. It it's the context for everything the fish does. Therefore, the fish would never see it. Right. Exactly. So so, so too pop culture, right? I I walked into this room so I could make this recording. 
and I had I had a television running and my iPad spitting out a podcast for me simultaneously. I had to shut all that stuff down, right? Because it's just this cacophony in the background. Right. And I think I I, I would lay claim that that everyone who hears this right now, maybe almost everyone, has that same sort of thing in their lives. And isn't that, that's really interesting, right? Because what does pop culture do? That and, and that's a different sort of question. And people tend to get very agitated when they disagree with what the, the hordes who make the pop culture end up trying to, to accomplish. Um, and I, I would submit that that's where the, the battles are won and lost. That you do what you can at the level where people's opinions are being formed. Right. And that is not politics. Right. That's actually a very interesting point because one of the things I wanted to touch on with you that I think connects exactly what you're saying there at the end is that in this way you say pop culture is a leading indicator of what's to come. Yeah. So why don't you just continue basically on the train while you're on, expand on that because I think this idea of it being a leading indicator wraps it up nicely. Yeah, no, and I, I like that too. I'm just returning to that after quite a lot of years. Right? I wrote, a, I wrote an editorial, maybe we can get a link into the, the show notes or, or whatever. Um in which I, I made this claim that that pop culture is a leading indicator. It tells you in in pr- pretty certain terms where your politics is going to be maybe 10 years later. And if you think about this, well, and I'm just going to talk about uh, American examples. I, I'm, I'm just too ignorant of Canadian examples to use them. I think they probably ring true either way. Mm-hmm. So um, h- how did we end up? With gay marriage in the United States, for crying out loud, I had students back in when I first started uh, as a professor, so late 90s. And one girl in a class raised her hand. She said, do you think there will ever be gay marriage? I said, oh, God, no. What's wrong with you? No, of course not. Um, More is the pity, right? I I like to think that everybody should have access to everything everybody else has. Mm -hmm. As just as a, a matter of fundamental fairness, right? I mean, how can you say no to these people while saying yes to these other people for, you know, hundreds of years? But I, when she asked, I, I just couldn't imagine how that was going to work out, and and come to find out, um, well, I, I had already been to a gay wedding, and and that happened back in the early '90s where I grew up in Connecticut. Of course, there was no state sponsorship here. They, they, that re- that wedding was never going to be recognized. Right. But then um, quite a while later, I guess it would have been 2016, maybe 2015, I went to a, another gay wedding, this time in the state of Utah, of all places, right? Of all the places you would think gay marriage would never have any place to, to hang its at, Utah is it. And mm-hmm. yet they had no choice but to because of the Supreme Court case. But more than that. The, the little old ladies from town showed up with flowers and everybody was happy. And, and it was clear to me that somehow we had turned a corner, right? And, and you start asking yourself, how the hell did that happen? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the first thing I think about are, are gay characters on television and in movies. And it used to be that... Every gay character had to be flamboyantly gay. Mm-hmm. The whole thing had to surround that character. And as a result, people, they, they were, people really didn't care much about it. 
But when gay characters became the norm and they were in the background and they just happened to be gay, right? something, something very different happened because people in their own lives know people exactly like that. And they thought, hey, that's like my friend John. Right. This is pretty this is pretty cool. And by the time you see that on multiple shows, and I'm thinking things like Will and Grace, where you've got kind of every sort of human flavor in the in the main cast. Oh, and I think it probably starts with this great movie from the past called Brooklyn Bridge, where um you know there was one gay character and he kept saying, This doesn't define me. And I and, and I thought, you know, that's right, it wouldn't. How could it? Right? Mm-hmm. And as these things happen, you realize that pop culture is way out in front of public opinion. Right. And public opinion changes over time towards that way if and only if the people think that that's a reasonable claim. Mm-hmm. So, so people came to think for a series of reasons that we don't really even have to care about today. They came to think that their gay friends deserved all the same rights and privileges that they did. And and that is a particularly unremarkable perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was going to say that that just means as well, the flip side of what you said is politics as a, as a lagging indicator, it's trailing behind pop culture. That is, you know, some people might, of course, from the politician's perspective or a certain partisan party, you know, they often like to tell this story on these timelines as their great triumphs at this legislative victory. But you're saying that that's a bunch of hogwash ultimately. I think it is. And, and politics for, for all the money, I think, is a lagging indicator. And how could it not be, right? The, the people there are looking to get elected. And you don't get elected by being out on, on the fringe of public opinion. You get elected or reelected by being mostly in the same ballpark as, as the people from a, a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. And, and that's interesting, right? Um, but it, it stunts certain things. From, from occurring quickly. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I think when you're talking about moving the culture, you should be very, very careful. I think moving the culture in convulsions is almost always a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Moving it incrementally while not making things immediately fair or perfect keeps you on the trail towards perfection. And, and the example, you know, the, the easy and a crappy example here from the American perspective is slavery and race relations. Right. So we'll, we can pick up this story after slavery has been abolished. So the 13th amendment you know, coming out of the civil war, we can't have slavery anymore. Fine. Okay. Now you've got these black problems, not slave problems. And, and you've got racism throughout the country. Some saying it's worse than the North. Some saying it's worse than the South. And it, it's pretty bad either way. So how did it happen that black people not only became our neighbors, but our friends? How is it that we came to appreciate their form of art? Right. We, we had a bunch of white kids listening to a bunch of black kid music. Mm-hmm. And, and what could be better than that? Right. When you're thinking about trying to find a way for human beings to get along um, they have to actually appreciate each other in some way. And there's literally no way that government can ever make that happen. No, they have to actually it, live together and be human beings together rather than, you know, someone on a chessboard moving things around and trying to legislate something, right? 
That is absolutely correct. There is literally no way. What are you going to pass a law that says like people who you don't like? Right. I mean, that's just that's just asinine. And and when you think about it, I, I contend that there are two very specific ways that blacks and whites came to to actually love and respect each other. I'm not saying there aren't still problems. There absolutely are. But from the perspective of our past, we are living in a profoundly enlightened time. Mm -hmm. And and there's a couple of ways. And I'll I'll start with music because it's always my favorite thing in the world. Uh, I just love music. And so do black people as as it goes. And I learned quite a lot from them because I'm a musician and I play blues music. That was their art form. And Mm -hmm. did we steal it? Was it co-opted? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Thank God. Right. This is a great thing. Um, but but that doesn't speak to how millions of American kids came to appreciate black music because it wasn't like it is now. Right. Where you can just people are, are happy tuning into anything. Right. And listening to it. Back then, it was kind of like musical segregation. Right. You weren't really allowed to that's, hear the other. That's, people. A, that's a really good point. Like even, of course, um, you know. In my lifetime, I was born in the 90s, and in my lifetime, I can't think of even once where somebody listened to a song and even brought up at first, like, whether they were angry or happy because the person was such and such color or creed. It was more like, oh, whether they liked the music or not. Now, you go back a couple decades or even, you know, maybe even one and a half before I was born, and that might have even been still normal to some people to, like, actually be, you know, be upset just the fact that that a black man's on the radio or something. But but you're absolutely right. It's 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 just a thing that you don't even think about now, but but that was the norm at at one point, right, before everything got more uh, unsegregated musically. It it absolutely was the norm. And there were, of course, a few breakthrough performers, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't hard and fast in in every single moment. So you could actually listen to Chuck Berry, right? Things like this. Um, You could catch him on TV from time to time. But really, music doesn't change globally into a thing that everybody can listen to unabashedly, right? And that's when... Uh, Run DMC Hmm. did a version of Aerosmith's Walk This Way with Aerosmith. Right. And and Run DMC, you know, they were great, but I think it was, they they were pressing up against being not great or not exploding. And Aerosmith at the time, they were in rough straits. They had become quite irrelevant. And by this one single crossover by each, it became so obvious to young people across the country that maybe there's something really cool that we can look at here, right? There, this is not a dangerous thing. This is an excellent thing. And from that point forward, white kids listen to black music. And it's gotten to the point now where black kids are listening to white music. Mm-hmm. And I, I would submit that really what's happening is that human beings are listening to music drop all the descriptors, right? We don't have to right. get into race or, or music style anymore. Why? Because it's out there and everybody enjoys it to whatever extent they want. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the think, discussion, discussions of who influences who and where it historically come from, those are relevant and people enjoy those. But but in terms of the actual listening to such and such track, I think you're absolutely correct. It, it, it might be rooted in something, but people are just most people are just listening to each other's music now. And I think that's great. I never really think about where anything came from. 
uh, until I want to sit down and write about it or think it through a little Mm -hmm. more. Because listening to music is a joyful experience. I want to have as many opportunities as I can. Is that cultural appropriation? Damn right it is. Of course it is. And I'm going to appropriate the absolute best from every single thing I find. That's how my life, that's how my life becomes wonderful. And, and life can be wonderful if you allow it to be, um, you know, people from my parents' generation never would have thought this way. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. My, my children never see a way not to think about things this way. Right. So uh, something has happened and it had nothing to do with acts of Congress. Now the, the second, the second great thing that I always point to after music, of course, is sports. Sports is pop culture. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look at what's going on with sports, I don't know how many little white kids you need to see walking past you with a LeBron jersey on. Right. Right? It's amazing. Our, our sports heroes, the people who we look up to the most, doesn't matter what color they are. It matters how well they perform. It matters if they're decent people, right? These sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And isn't that something? And you can go all the way back to the, I guess, 1920s, but you see a, a black heavyweight champion. And, you know, you get to Jackie, Jackie Robinson and the integration of baseball, the old Negro Leagues. Right? There's all kinds of rich history here to, to unpack. And nobody ever thinks about that because when the game comes on, I need the Red Sox to beat the Yankees. Right. Uh, we don't need to have a long conversation about how the teams came to look the way they look. Right. I just need the Red Sox to beat the Yankees. And there's a bunch of other people exactly like me. And matter of fact, if you go to Boston and you're at Fenway Park, you'll hear a chant go up every now and then. And by every now and then, I mean every day. Uh, Yankees suck over and over and over. And the weird thing is, is if you look around and the Red Sox are not playing the Yankees, that still happens. Right. Right. And and then if you're from New England, you realize that if you go to some other sporting event, like high school basketball, Yankees suck will be a chant there, too. And and I like to joke around and tell people they chanted that at my wedding. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm only halfway kidding because it gets sports gets to the heart of people in a way that almost nothing else does. And we like watching it together. We like talking about it, right? Think of the NCAA tournament in March. Everybody, nobody does any work that month because all they want to do is watch the games and talk about it. And I think that's fantastic, mm-hmm. right? It's a thing that we share as human beings that goes way beyond our differences. Mm-hmm. Whoever I'm sitting next to at the ballpark is definitionally my friend. Right. Right. We're all at the park. It's sunny. It's beautiful. The socks are playing. Of course, we're all friends. And even when, in the unlikely event, somebody shows up with a Yankee hat, I'll tell him he's an ass, and then he'll be my friend anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And and, right, because, and as we were saying, though, and then now it'd be you'd be in the minority of people if if as I was saying with music, you actually sat there and for some reason called attention to what color a player was or 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 what, yeah, what they were thing. doing. That that person would be in the minority now. That's not acceptable. And, and in my preferred city of Boston, it does happen. Uh, racial slurs mm-hmm. happen there, I think, a little more than in most other places. And, you know, there's a long kind of terrible history of race in Boston mm-hmm. that really culminated with um, 
busing black kids being bused to white neighborhoods to go to school and and it left a very terrible taste that's still in in the boston mouth and every now and then somebody says something quite horrible and and what happens that man that person is hunted down and escorted to the outside of the ballpark right because the rest of us aren't going to put up with that and i think okay i mean there's a, a bad sentence that started this sequence of events and yet the, the result was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And when, when you realize it's less than one person for every 40,000, okay, and I can live with that. It's not perfect, but I can live with it. And that's the difference, I think, from between philosophy, which always requires things to be perfect in every sense, more or less, and uh, political philosophy. You give me 99%, I can work with that. Mm-hmm. I can absolutely work with that. You get almost everybody on the same page. That's a miracle. Right. Absolutely. Let's, let's work. Let's work with it. So if you take a look at these two things, right, sports and music, you can kind of see how this works. Yeah. Everybody, everybody already knows that what I'm saying is correct. They've just not thought it through. Yeah, I think those are I think those are two very, very good examples. And I think one thing I'm very interested in your thinking on this as well is that I think this speaks to how you know, how things progress over time and also how things culminate and there's a culmination of things. And one thing you noted in one of your articles was that when we can point to something after a process is done, like let's say after integration in a sport is done or after, you know, we get to the point where people are listening to each other's music, that's sort of like, it's not an end point in the sense it's over forever, but it's an end point on a certain journey. Just like, you know, for instance, we can point to some sort of magazine or some sort of TV channel as sort of the culmination of a lot of progress in pop culture. So, you, you you have noted in one of your articles that we often p- point to these symbols. Like I think one of the symbols you you, uh, you pointed to in one of your articles was like Playboy magazine, for example, or anything you can think of that, quote, push the envelope. But you kind of came back around in a sentence and said, but at the end of the day, sort of towards the end part, when we point at something that pushed the envelope, you're saying you, you, you said in this essay that but that's because people were people. We're ready for the envelope to be pushed. That's why, you know, Playboy didn't go bankrupt immediately. And we're still, we still have a lot of the things and a lot of the the symbols of progress that even you talked about. It's because people were finally ready to have the envelope pushed or the line crossed or whatever metaphor we want to throw out there. Right. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking that that's the right thing to think, Hmm. right? That, that broadly speaking, it, it does have to work this way. And, uh, you know, I think about my parents' generation and race, and it was, they were brutal. They were absolutely brutal. But what happens? I got to be a teenager and I went to high school with a bunch of black guys, a bunch of other kinds of people too. Mm -hmm. And I got to know them the way you do when you're in their presence every day for six or eight hours. I came to realize that while I didn't love them because they were different, um, I didn't hate them either they were just people and then i would have to figure it out individually what i thought of them Mm -hmm. and i think that's the most charitable and and maybe the most wonderful thing that you can say about social evolution right nobody and i think we get a little preachy from time to time especially on television we probably ought not um so i don't think that having a gay character on a tv show is a fantastic thing in and of itself I want to see how it's how it's used, right? How interesting right. is that character's story? Right. The if, same if the show is any about, good, right? Right. The same questions I'd ask about any other show. And that's how you know that we've kind of gotten to a pretty good place. I'm willing internally to hold this group 
to all the same rules I, I hold in this group. Right. And isn't that isn't that something, right? Um, and then I get to be a high school agent, and that happens. But then my children are born, and you don't really see things happening with them because they go and they live their lives as they will. But I've never heard one of them talk about race as if it mattered at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, not ever. Right. Uh, and there there are different things that are that are the de facto experience for young people now. And it does seem when you have the perspective of time, and I say this because I'm just older than you are, right, and older than my children are, you can see it happen. If you step back and hold your breath for just a minute, you can see the sweep of time and how everything changes over time. And the arguments we have become different. And, you know, the arguments that we get now, I don't know what to think of them. I, I get that they fit into the larger progression that I've already thought about. But, you know, think about gender issues now. Very divisive, right? Um, where are we going to be in 20 years on this? And I don't know. What I do know is that all of a sudden gender as a problem is popping up in my entertainment. Right. And, and that that tells me one thing that we're taking it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even, I don't want to exaggerate and say five, I'll be safe and say 10 or more years ago. Um, anytime something like that would be addressed, it would always be the butt of a joke, or as you said, treated yeah. like in a one-dimensional way. Now it's actually being treated with real multi-dimensional characters. Maybe one happens to be transgender, whatever the case may be. You're right. It's now coming into the popular culture media and as a topic unto itself being taken seriously. And we'll see what happens. And the interesting thing here, you'd want to say, well, you know, it's probably not going to work out because of demographics and lots of people will be against it. But who consumes the media? It's not my my father. Right. It's not old people. It's young people. It's not even me. Right. The important group to see whether this is going to be accepted or rejected over the long haul. Those people are all right now teenagers and 20-somethings. Right. And they're going to decide where we end up on this. Right. Just like I decided and people in my cohort decided where we were going to end up with race. That's an so point. Here, here we go. And I guess I'll just wait to find out. I mean, I have my suspicions. They're irrelevant. I never even talk about them. I don't want to pollute the water. Mm. I want to see what happens. Right. Because I, I think the way that people react to these sorts of things it's just fascinating, but you, you can actually see the future if you can sit still enough mm-hmm. and okay, let's, let's go from the other side. Now, do you get any of that? When you look at politics, I'm a political scientist by training and I'm telling you, don't look here. It's not here. Right. I studied this. I studied this for what? 35 years. It ain't here. Right. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, John Robson, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. I guess another way to think about it, too, is 
especially with the way like if we stick with American politics the way that's run now through a lot of public relations polling and so on and so forth that should tell you in and of itself what the politicians by their teams around them are told to say and what they're following they're not sitting around Mm -hmm. saying guys let's get out of the whiteboard together and talk about the principles of classical liberalism and how to market that that's not what they're saying for for example they're they're definitely saying what's polling where and so on and so forth right more, more is the pity. Uh, it would be great if they would think that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have, uh, they have a problem, right? Politicians have a problem. They have to care about what happens right now mm-hmm. because they're looking to be reelected. And the House of Representatives is up for reelection in its com- in completely every other year. Right. You're not, you're not going to get a lot of forward-looking nonsense out of that group. They have to be ready to win. They start campaigning for the next race the day they win the first one. Yep. Absolutely. And you're going to get certain answers out of them that don't make you happy. So, okay, maybe the Senate, maybe that's the right answer. They, they're, they're up for re-election every six years. So only one-third of that body is up for uh, re-election every other year with the, the House members. But the, if you really take a long look at the Senate, not a lot of young people there. You, you kind of <laughs> right. have to look institutionally it's set up to yield a certain kind of person and it's going to be an old person that's somewhat reflective right that's what you're going to get in the senate how are they going to be reflective enough to take pop culture seriously no they are not so okay maybe we should look at the president before i even start i know that's not the right answer right so just we'll throw that away and here's the curiosity we can think about the supreme court and its ability to shift the culture. And people always bring up two decisions to point at. The, the court is the way to go. And you look at, at the culture and people are trying to accomplish accomplish things. And they're, they're frequently trying to get their issues to the level of the Supreme Court where they can get a final answer that never changes mm-hmm. that makes them happy. Right. So, okay, let's talk first about Brown versus Board of Education early 1950s in the United States. Um, Without getting into the weeds, this is a decision that desegregates American schools. You can't have black school and white school anymore. You can have school. Right. All right. The oddest thing in the world happens here, because if you study the the period, if you really look into the era, um, what you find is that American people we're already talking about integration. It was already a thing that they could accept. And it was already happening where they lived. It wasn't perfect. It was happening in an evolutionary way. Right. As almost everything does, right? If, if you're not an idiot about this, you can actually step back and see that all social change is, is steps and stages. And the first step had already been counted with, desegregation. People were ready for it. They were doing it. And the decision by the Supreme Court didn't cause that. It gave it its blessing. Right. So the Supreme Court made a statement. And the statement was, yeah, if you're doing this already, you're on the right side. That's unremarkable. That's It's unremarkable in one way and incredibly remarkable in another. But notice the Supreme Court didn't do anything. 
except bless something that was already happening. Right. So sometimes a better way to look at the quote landmark decisions is more like a landmark verification or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly that is a perfect word for this. That is exactly right. And and the more you look at things, the more you realize, okay, Brown's not the only thing. Right. Because uh, right now, uh, American the American people are convulsing over abortion rights yet again. Mm-hmm. Because every, and it's ridiculous, right? Every time somebody's nominated to the Supreme Court, they get the question, well, what about Roe versus Wade? And then they say something idiotic, like, well, you know, I've never really thought about that. And, you know, right. We'll get to it, blah, blah, blah. They haven't thought of that. What a load of bullshit that is. Mm-hmm. I, I, I teach undergraduates from time to time, and they've all thought about it. Right. I have high, I have high school kids living in my house, and they all thought about it. Right. The thought that you were qualified to sit on the Supreme Court and you had never thought about it, you should be disqualified for lying from the first minute. <laughs> right. All right, but but let's think about it for a minute. So Roe is in the early 70s. And, you know, it's hard to paint with a broad brush here because there's a lot of what I would consider idiotic things in that decision. So we'll just stick with the idea that that decision, for whatever the reason, by whatever path, grants uh, a right of abortion to women in the United States. Right. We'll just, we'll, we'll keep above the weeds and we'll just say that mm-hmm. um, because why did we have to do this? And we hear it all the time because women were having back alley abortions, whatever the hell that means. Mm. Like, like people are in alleys and cities with you know the rain coming down and the garbage cans out. And that's where they were having abortions. That's asinine. That is not what happened at all. So what happened? And I, I'll give you a personal story. I had, a, I had an Aunt Louise, who was one of the all-time great people, lived to be almost exactly 100. Hmm. And uh, she, she had this house back in Waterbury, Connecticut, where I grew up. And uh, we used to go there. That was like the family meeting place. And we'd, we'd go there all the time. And my father rarely went, but one time he did. And he said, hey, go look around at the bedrooms and see if you can find something strange. And I did. I walked up and down the hall and all the doors were open and I didn't see anything at all that would count as odd. So I went back and reported my non findings. And he said, look at the doorknobs. There's a lock on every single bedroom in this house. And uh, that that house was built in the 1950s. That was not the way things were built here. Right. Without put locks on every bedroom door. And he said, that's because this house used to be a place where women came for abortions. Hmm. And every bedroom was a place where a doctor applied that trade. Right. Downstairs, there was a bar. That was for the men who accompanied the women to get an abortion. And uh, there was a movie screen, and they would show the movies to keep them, you know, interested. And that was in the 1950s. You're going to tell me that Roe versus Wade was a, a big, gigantic thing that changed everything? No, things had already changed by the time that case was heard. Right, they changed for they changed for you know quite some time. And there's a guy Rosenberg uh, wrote this book, and you should check it out if you think I'm crazy. It's called The Hollow Hope, and he talks about Roe and Brown. He also talks about environmental things and how the people already arrive at their decision before the laws are even made. Because how the hell else would the laws get made in the first place, right? And you start to realize, okay. We live in a different world than I expected because you hear the, the chirping talking heads and you start to think everything is politics. Right. And, and Aristotle would have told you that everything is political 
But not everything is politics. Right, not politics in the sense of the party and the institutions right. in a narrower way, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we interact with one another, we do so politically. You and I are doing it right now, right? Anytime you see two people or more, you'll see human politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of things that factor into that. Yeah. The most interesting, though, is, is the, the ability of this sort of thing to absolutely redefine our lives in such a subtle way that none of us even recognize that it's happening. Yeah. Just one day you look up and you say, oh, my God, gays are getting married mm -hmm. in, in Utah. <laughs> right. The last place in the world I would have thought. And I went and I saw my two dear friends get married there. It was out of this world. Mm -hmm. That same girl who asked about gay marriage asked about marijuana legalization. And I said, oh, God, no. So I'm, not only am I wrong, I'm fantastically wrong. And I'm fantastically wrong in two things in the same class. What an idiot. <laughs> I, I, I get paid to do this and, and I get it that wrong, right. at least that year. That, I've gotten better at these predictions, but you know, nobody's perfect. Right. And uh, you know, you, you start to think about what marijuana legalization actually means. Because I got thrown out of college. I'm the only professor who will ever admit this. I got thrown out of college for smoking dope on campus. Hmm. Yeah. It's like getting thrown out of church for praying, but okay. Yeah, pretty much. So, so, so out I went. I ended up going back some years later. It took me eight years to get a bachelor's degree. I had to work third shift every night to, to get this degree. You know, so I paid the price for this. Right. And, and one day I'm out in Colorado visiting a friend. And I say, hey, man, let's go check out the dispensary. I've never seen one. And we, we go. And we buy these little edible things. I mm -hmm. can admit this now because it's all legal. Right. And uh, I, I walked out and my friend looked at me and said, can you imagine all those ruined lives because people got caught smoking weed or in the middle of the transaction? Absolutely. Yeah. How, how many human beings ended up in cages because of this? And, and it, I, I, my rejoinder to him was, yeah. And if you think about what we just did, Everybody walked away happy. I wanted to buy something. The seller wanted to sell something. Right. I bought from the seller. He was happy. I was happy. What a remarkable thing. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and at the beginning of this, Anthony Davies, my writing partner, and I, we wrote a series of articles because people were complaining that it, it was going to become, the United States would become a post-apocalyptic hellscape <laughs> if everybody could just go buy weed. Yeah. And I'm thinking... Yeah, that that's probably not right. Right. And how do I how do I know that? Well, I've seen people on weed, and they scare me way less than people drinking whiskey. Right. right? Absolutely. I've, I've never seen a pot smoker try to take the head off another person. Right. Absolutely. A, per a perceived insult. Right. Um, so we wrote these articles and ahead of time saying, "Don't worry about it." And then we we wrote articles after the fact and said, "Well, see, you shouldn't have worried about it." Nothing bad happened. As a matter of fact, in Colorado, where we did most of the research, every single level, every single kind of crime was down a year after legalization. Even murder. I have no idea what to make of that. I don't think people are murdering each other over, you know, a, a couple of joints. And, right. and yet, all the, but all the crime was down. It, the data is unambiguous. It's very clear. And how does all this happen, right? Well, I think I smoked weed a long time ago, and I got caught. And 
that's how my family had the big discussion about weed. Right. And you told them but you didn't whether, inhale, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing, right? You, you see Bill Clinton on TV right. saying that crap that he didn't inhale. And if one of my friends didn't inhale, he'd get a slap. That's a valuable thing that you're not smoking. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You just pass it to the next person. We don't care if you don't want any. Right. <laughs> of course, Bill. Of course, Bill Clinton smoked a joint. Come on. Of course. You, you, Everybody his age, you, you can barely grow up and, and, and say you never smoked a joint. And when a sitting president, or I guess maybe he was still uh, a candidate when he said it, nonetheless, when somebody that prominent in American politics can even talk about weed. Right. And then you get Barack Obama, who was part of what, it, what did they call it, the Chum Brothers, I believe that his little weed smoking group was called. Right. And, and I don't give two and I say shit on this podcast. I, I don't give two of those um, whether he smoked weed or not. The right question is, can he do the job well? Right. And that's all I care about. Now, it's a weird thing because every president we have doesn't do the job particularly well. But, you know, okay. Yeah. Notice how, how people just stopped caring about marijuana legalization. Who cares about it at all anymore? Yeah, the world, father, the world didn't end, and it also didn't cause no. utopia. We're somewhere in the middle, as usual, et cetera. Yeah, right. And it's commerce. So in the places where you have it, it's a, a pretty good thing. Uh, in the places where you don't have it, people are saying, well, damn, we should have it. And you start to realize that every single hot-button issue, and I mean all of them, mm -hmm. maybe with the one exception of going to war, Every one of these things is well determined in popular culture long before the political people get to it. Right. And actually, some would make the argument that a lot of work goes into convincing people to be okay with war. I yeah. think I actually think um, this is a large claim that might require whole other episodes. So everyone just please give me the assumption for a second. I think the American people are actually large, largely anti-war. And if you look at a lot of the things that happen, it takes a lot to get people to start thinking that they should be going to war and, and getting rabid in that sort of way. So I think, again, that's another case where maybe a specific action might be an executive decision, but to actually get people okay and normalizing the idea, yeah, we should go do X, Y, and Z. It either takes a massive tragedy. There's a couple examples of that, but it also think, takes a lot of convincing to the population to be somewhat okay with it to somewhat, to some degree. So I think again, even, even one might be able to make the argument in those cases that it's largely a follower effect as well in, in some ways. So this is obviously incredibly no, nuanced. I think that's all fair. Um, it, it's, it's not complete, but it's all fair. Right. And and were we to kind of traipse down this road a bit, I, I do think it would be another hour. Right, uh, exactly. At, at, le at, at least. But but think about it in the in the recent terms, right? And there's going to be a lot of your, your listeners who can remember going to Iraq and going to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And what, what did the president then do? Got a broad international coalition to get behind him because – You've got to account for public opinion here. You can't go and bomb the hell out of a bunch of people and hope that that's just going to be okay. And with it's a curious thing, right? Because with Iraq, they always told us, the politicians, that Saddam Hussein is getting weapons of mass destruction. Right, it's right. going to be a real problem. Mm -hmm. And then and, and people don't want to be nuked. Go figure, right? So Yeah, but but notice that the claim wasn't, wasn't only nukes. There were mm -hmm. other things. Like bioweapons and, and things like that, yeah. Yeah, bioweapons, exactly. And when 
when people came to realize that we had been in Iraq for too long, and we have, right, that's, I look, I lived there, and I'll tell you, we've been there for too long. Um, when when it, it came to be the case that people started saying things like, we were lied to, never found weapons of mass destruction, you have to ask yourself, was that a plan? Was that what the politicians just said to get you off their back? Was it a lie? Or were they saying those things in good faith? Uh, I think it's the latter. I, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost positive that people said these things in good faith. Now, were any nukes ever found? Was there any nuclear material ever found? And the answer to that is no. But prior to the American invasion, I already knew that, that Saddam Hussein had bioweapons mm-hmm. because I remember when he used them on the, on the town of Halabja. Right which was about 45 minutes from where I lived and when I was over there. And that entire town was eviscerated. Uh, Saddam Hussein was involving himself in genocide. Right. He, he would have killed every Kurd in his country if he could get away with it. Right. Uh, well, that sounds like weapons of mass destruction to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I cut a little more slack. And I'm not really in favor of occupying countries. I'm, I'm just saying that what you're looking at here differs from what you hear about these things. You can see it with your own eyes. You can go find out. And unfortunately, most people in America don't do that. Indeed, almost none could point to Iraq on a map. No idea even where it is. Um, and, and broadly speaking, Americans, regular Americans, don't really care about foreign policy. They care about other things, like when does the mall open? Can we go bowling this week? Right? These are the sorts of things they, they really think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's regular life. Regular life is kind of hard. You really have to plan it. And if you want to add another bunch of hours every day to, to keep track of what politicians are up to, you're not going to be a particularly happy person. Right. But as we've discussed, we can definitely keep track of still what, what people are generally thinking in, in pop culture itself. And and I yeah. think as our time sort of heads into the downswing here, I want to kind of flip the conversation a little bit because I think what we've done is we've covered in a very great way how what pop culture is, what it does, how it's a leading indicator and, and the things it doesn't indicate. I, I want to sort of come from a different perspective. You know, there are a lot of people who self-proclaim conservative values that often – frame or see, uh, you know, for better or worse, I think I'm making a relatively neutral statement here, regardless of one's own value judgment. They tend to see pop culture, what's reflected in symbols, artists, musically, whatever the case may be, as as some sort of like radicalizing element in society. That is to say, things were X, then this phenomena happened, and now we're seeing Y. Now, given everything we've just been talking about with pop culture as as you put it, which I think in, in a great way, which was that, yeah, sure, the envelope's being pushed, but it was ready to be pushed anyway. Am I just asking a question for no reason here? Is that your sort of full stop answer to that more conservative critique? Or, or like, you know, where do you think of the, where do you place the people in this conversation that say things were like this, this happened, and now we're seeing, you know, right. the, the effect? Because I'm not sure if that rings true compared to all the other things you're, you've been saying. It, it, it look, what you what you generally hear or people who say, in, in essence, can't we just have 1950 again? <laughs> right. Yeah, Donald, Donald Trump came around and he said, let's make America great again. Right. And again, Nobody, it was actually, everybody was talking about great as like carrying a lot of weight, but it was the again that actually carried a lot well, of weight, right? But what time are we looking back towards? Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, if it's 1950, you still got the Jim Crow South. Yep. 
I'm going to take a hard pass on that. America was not great then. Mm-hmm. It was better than it was in 1842 when you still had slavery. But I'm going to I'm going to twist this around and give you the answer that got me thinking about pop culture in the first place. Right? Okay. It was something that, as a political scientist, I never thought about. I'm an institutional guy. I think about the institutions of governance and things like this. And then when I started thinking about pop culture, everything changed, at least in my brain. And um, the argument that you just put forth on behalf of conservative people are that this is garbage and we shouldn't pay attention to it. It'll make us somehow worse right. if we have these things in our in our lives. Okay. How far back can we say pop culture existed? And the unremarkable answer I'm going to give is it goes back until there were no humans. When there were human beings and they lived together, you had pop culture. Hmm. And I can I can give you a, a half-decent answer uh, that, that get you down this road. I want to bring you back to the time before Plato and Socrates walked the earth. This is a long time ago, hmm. a couple thousand years. Did they have culture? Well, of course they did. We, we still think about Greek culture as being unbelievably wonderful. Did they have pop culture? Yeah, they did. How do I know? There's this guy, Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. That's high culture for us now. That was pop culture for them then. Right. In, in the same way Shakespeare, people forget, was, was uh, very pleasing to what would have been viewed as the rabble at that time. A lot of that humor yeah. and a lot of the way it was That's written right. was for, for that general audience, not the, uh, not the king and the lord in attendance or whatever, right? And isn't that astonishing? Mm-hmm. Now, if you dig into Homer a little more deeply, you realize that what we understand as Homeric works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were absolutely not written by any any guy named Homer. Hmm. There was a guy named Homer. I think most people would agree to that. But th- these books came out of an oral tradition. So over the years, after the first edition, let's say for the sake of, of, of easy, <laughs> right. of easy uh, argument, after that first edition, other things kept being added until somewhere way down the line, canonical Homer came to exist, and we, we said, okay, no more. It's great just the way it is. And that's what we've been looking at ever mm-hmm. since. And, and who, who cares about Homer? Stodgy old people, right? People who are looking for, in the liberal arts tradition, the, uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful. But really, the way it came into being was that everybody participated. Right. And, that, and that's not high culture, not by definition. When everybody is involved in making the thing, that's pop culture. Right. It's probably even something different than pop culture. But at the very least, I'm on the right track. Right? And if you, if you start thinking about these things, and look, I'm just pointing things out that people tend not to think about that much. Um, I think what, I, what I've talked about, most people, if they thought it through, would very likely end up at some similar conclusion. I just, as a political scientist, I had certain literatures that I could pluck from and put together and I could step back and say, yep, that's a thing. And you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm, I am right now. That's a thing. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there are parts of it that I've missed terribly. And I'm, I'm kind of betting there are, um, have I gotten most of it? Well, and I think, yeah, I, I probably have. Yeah. So you know, the work continues and I'll figure it out and I'll, I'll write a pretty interesting book. I hope about it in the not so distant future. 
But for me, as with everyone um, on these sorts of things, it's a work in progress. I have to understand things better before I start writing things down that people will read and say that I'm an idiot for having written. Fair enough. And and on that note, I'm just looking at at our our time here. And, and, you know, before our time completely winds down, I want to shift into one more different gear, which is, you know, of course, having said all that, you've said it directly in an essay that maybe some of our listeners haven't read, but I think they, they get the idea, especially during this conversation. But I just want to wrap it up in, in, a, in, a, in a more finer point here. So in general, I think it's safe to say you seem to think that those who want to make an impact on others then, if, if we take the implication of this conversation, shouldn't, as you say, just focus on politics in the narrow sense. I mean, obviously, as we said, things are widely political, and I believe that is ab- absolutely true. Most Most things, if not all, are widely political in that sense. But, you know, a lot of those are interested in spreading ideas and so on and so forth or or being involved in the conversation. It would seem that you definitely encourage people to, well, maybe listen and make a listen to and make a podcast, for example, or or, or write their thoughts, get on social media and join pop culture if they actually want to make make an impact. You know, some people might laugh at what I just said there, which is if you want to make an impact, join pop culture. But but I think in particular ways, is, is that not a fair conclusion? I think it is. And and look. I think there is something valuable about what I do, right? And I'm I'm a political guy in, in many key respects. Um, but for a young person right now, and young people love to say they want to change the world. Now it's it's nonsense for most of them. But look, if that's really what you want, how best to do it should be the first question you ask. Right. And and taking becoming a a page in the Congress. Probably not the right way to do it. <laughs> Becoming an intern instead at Universal Studios. Hey, now you got something. Hmm. Go, getting a job as a stringer in a magazine or, or a newspaper. Right. Ah, now you really got something. Because you're actually looking in those places at the way people's opinions change. If you go and become a congressional page, what you're going to see is the opinions that were changed 40 years ago. Hmm. And if you want to make a difference, talking to people who have already made up their minds, and even that a very long time ago, not going to be effective. If, on the other hand, you can watch and say, wow, I bet a lot of people took away something from that Captain America movie where he came to distrust all government, right? Um, Well, that's where you want to be. You want to be at a place like that, I would, right? Where I would say at least as far court, as you and I are concerned, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you want to be at that place where fa- fantastic things are being thought about, talked about, and then that provides a sort of entertainment for the rest of us. And we look at it and we think, mm-hmm. hey, Cap, Cap, Cap is kind of right. They're, these dirtbags do exist in government, and they really shouldn't. And, hey, um, that's a win. Yeah. Right. A win that you're not going to see legislatively, at least not for another 30, 40 years. Absolutely. So how how badly do you want to win and how deep into the game do you want to get? Because if you really want to make a difference. Go find some slot in an outlet that gives us entertainment instead of politics. That's fair enough. And with that, I'd, I'd like to move us on to our. Formal wrap-up in conclusion, uh, James, as, as you probably remember, I want to make sure in each episode we, we wrap things up, but ultimately let the guest have the last words. So, so let me officially ask you the, the last question, which is, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what pop culture says about a society? In other words, if there was one, two, or just a handful of takeaways out of everything we've talked about that you want someone to remember, what would those ultimately be? 
you know, ultimately I'm a Jeffersonian type and, and I go back to the declaration of independence, that opening bit being probably the high point of rhetoric for the human race and pop culture to the extent that it leads us to a better position in which we're all equals. I'm a big fan, right? Because I think pop culture is aspirational, right? It, it not only tells us what it needs to tell us to, to entertain us, make us giggle a little bit or get lost in a drama. It also tells us who should be able to participate. And from the pop culture perspective, that group gets a little wider every year. And I think that's fantastic. And, and you start thinking, well, how well did the politicians do once we got underway here? And I don't think they did all that well. I'm a little ashamed of them. Uh, it's not even rare that I'm a little ashamed of them. But pop culture, on the other hand, what did America export to the world that made every place it went a better place? And it's this. It's pop culture, right? And this is how whenever I travel, and I've traveled extensively, I kind of know when I'm looking around a town what I can get away with. Because if I see McDonald's, right, that's a proxy for something. And if I see a couple of uh, American chain stores, I'm thinking, all right, here we are. I'm in the same place that I just left. Mm -hmm. If I get to a place and it doesn't have these things, what do I learn? I learn that the people want those things. They, they crave those things. When I got to Iraq, all I kept learning was that everybody there loved American movies, loved them. And as a result, they learned to speak English. They learned to speak English by watching movies. What more do you need to know if that's true? But after they learned to speak English, they, they can speak it to me. And they would come to me almost every day and say, I want to move to America. How do I do that? And I thought, well, how about that? It works. Pop culture. It turns the human mind. And it generally turns the human mind in pretty good ways. We've become better at dealing with each other because we, we took our cues from what we saw on our TV screens. And here we are. And I think it's a force for good, not only, not only uh, here and, and to the same extent in Canada, where we're essentially the same country in a lot of ways. Um, not all the ways, but in a lot of ways. <laughs> And you take a look around the world and say, yeah, I'm, I'm actually proud to have that go out to the rest of the people and see what they think. And I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So, James Harrigan, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. This was thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, James. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye-bye.